and uh, he was very much interested from a financial standpoint in making this succeed is the question I'm asking. Isn't that correct? He did express that to me. All right. Now, you commenced at the second channel, as you have told Mr. Lyman, uh, and the seven-point plan has been uh, introduced. Uh, you were unable, together with uh, our other representatives at the second channel, to consummate an agreement at that time. Is that, that correct? That is correct. Now, as I understand his testimony, at that point, you told Mr. Hakeem that you were leaving, coming back to Washington, and he had six hours if he could change their minds. Is that basically correct? Well, I, if I recall correctly, and I may not be accurate in this, but I think uh, what happened is that I had arrived in Europe for a meeting with the Second Channel. During the time in which I was transiting to Europe, the aircraft with Mr. Hassenfuss aboard and in which Captain Cooper and Captain Sawyer were killed had been shot down over Nicaragua. And when I got there, I was informed of that as soon as I established secure communications back with my office. And there was a desperate need for me to turn around. So you had back. to leave. That's right. And uh, General Secord left, as he has testified to this committee. I believe he did. I think he was working on the same problem. And Hakeem, at that point, was left as the only U.S. negotiator for the agreement that was ultimately agreed upon by the Iranians and the U.S. Is that correct? That is my recollection, yes, right. sir. Now, <coughs> Mr. Hakeem testified that he had to wait uh, after he had gotten the agreement with Iran, which he added these two very controversial sections uh, in there, as you have previously testified to. Uh, and he waited to see whether or not the U.S. accepted those. Sent you a message, General Secor did, didn't he? with the nine points. I, again, I'm, I am fuzzy on that, but eventually I got the nine points. And your superior approved those, and you sent the message back to General Secord and Hakeem. That I, I believe that's the way it went. That we had agreed to the, uh, to the nine-point agreement. Again, I, I, I would like to refresh myself on the nine-point agreement before I come well, up to I'll that. Well, I'll give you the I exhibit number. It is... Uh, 310. But while, while your counsel is getting that, if I could just, uh, so that you can refresh your memory, uh, you signaled that we had accepted that agreement based upon the approval of Secord. Yes, I did. Yes, sir. Later, Did you stop to think at all? And I'm, I know that you sought approval from your superior that the only person negotiating for the United States of America with Iran that ultimately obtained the agreement was a private citizen who had a substantial financial interest in the outcome of those negotiations. 
I don't believe that I communicated that to Admiral Poindexter, no, sir. And that never concerned um, Admiral Poindexter or yourself? Well, it, and I may be of in, it may well be, Congressman Jenkins, that I was most injudicious, and I have certainly difficult, though it has been, uh, and painful, though some of it has been, told the committee of things that I have done. Uh, I quite honestly considered that to be motivation to make it succeed, and that he had interests that went beyond just his next promotion or. Uh, going back and getting an accolade from his boss that, in fact, it offered a greater chance for ultimate success. The fact that he had a financial interest. The fact that he <coughs> saw long-term the potential for right, financial interest. Now, let, me, let interest. me ask you at this point. Uh, I know that... I know that you have just testified today that you told many falsehoods to the Iranians, and as you indicated, would have told them anything uh, in order to, uh, to get the hostages out at, at that time. Well, I may have overstated it when I said anything, but practically anything. Yes, I understand. But what is disturbing me about that part is that it was my understanding that we were attempting to open up a new understanding and initiative with Iran. Why would we start that off with a lot of falsehoods that would later obviously come back to haunt us very quickly? Well, I quite honestly don't think that any of these would necessarily have led to that kind of confrontation. I think that these things were if you'll excuse the expression, fuzzy enough, with the exception of the issues on return of Americans, that if you could have just gotten beyond my level and up to the Secretary of State level, or as one of my proposals went forward, even as late as mid-November, after everything was blowing up, uh, a meeting with the vice president and a high-level Iranian official in a, in a Mideastern state that we could have gotten beyond the issue of hostages and arms and quickly toward the kind of thing that would have yielded a solution to the war yes. between Iran and Iraq. And, and I think that's what but the Congressman Jenkins said. At that level, I mean, the, my counterpart on the Iranian side although young, was of more senior level than I. So and you didn't think that any falsehood that you told at that time in order to get them to accept the agreement would bother relations? I didn't think it would jeopardize the, the next step, is what I'm saying. And I, I was judicious, at least in that, Congressman Jenkins, that I didn't believe that the things I was saying would result in a increase of jeopardy for the next level of meeting that we were hoping for. Well, it, I, I must say that disturbs me somewhat, but I'm assuming that in your discussions with uh, Admiral Secord, uh, Admiral uh, Poindexter, that he had authorized you to make any type of uh, statement that you might desire at no, that uh, 
particular no. meeting. He didn't. Admiral Point Extra gave me certain basic parameters, and I tried to follow those in the midst of very difficult and sometimes very protracted negotiations. Okay. And I tried to keep him apprised when I was overseas through difficult communications methods. But nonetheless, I, I tried to live within the boundaries that had been established for me and yet still make progress on a very difficult issue. And you felt that you had the parameters at that time to make statements, excessive statements, or some outright uh, misrepresentations to the Iranians because it was in our interest to try to get the hostages back at that particular time. And foster the hope of a further meeting with senior level officials. Now let me follow up the private uh, sector just a bit and get away from, from that particular meeting. Uh, while I've supported contra aid by the United States government, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about this type of setup that some people call a government within a government, and I want to pursue that so that I understand it. I, if I may, Congressman Jenkins, I take issue with that description. I understand, and, and maybe I will too. That's the reason I want to ask you some questions about it. Now, as I understand, this continuing fund that would be funded from the profits or the uh, residuals, as you refer to them, of the sales to Iran, as well as some of the gifts from uh, at least one of the countries that went into the account, that would go into an off-budget account that would not be have anything to do with the United States government. It did not. But the projects that would be financed by that would all be directed by the United States government. Yes. And it would be directed by people within the National Security Council? Well, I'm, I'm not too sure how other people viewed my continued tenure at any one point in my time at the White House, but Director Casey clearly saw the need for something, as he put it, that you could pull off the shelf and use that was, as I indicated earlier, self-sustaining and was there. Well, I'm not so awfully concerned at this point what Colonel North would do, but I'm worried about the next person that has control over this account. Now, if I understand what you have testified to, that has been approved by your superiors. The vice president did not know that any of the funds from this account were being used for the Contras. If he did, I didn't tell him, sir. Right. So far as you know, I he believe he's made the statement, he did not know. As far as I know, he did not know. And why you assumed that the president knew is that correct? I did. You know that he has stated that he did not know. That's correct. And of course, neither the United States Senate nor the House of Representatives knew, nor their committees, because as you have testified, they were misrepresented, I'll be charitable, in their statements. I Is that correct? I did misrepresent that, yes. So what? concerns me from your testimony, and I'm not 
saying it's your policy. I'm willing to take because responsibility, you're simply, sir. You're simply following orders. I don't think that's an excuse for doing something against the law. Well, let me let me make this statement and ask you if it's correct. Not not a single official uh, elected by the people of the United States of America had any knowledge about the use of that fund. Is that correct or is it incorrect? Let, let me let me go. That, that is current knowledge, Congressman Jenkins, and that goes back to what I just said a few moments ago. It was my view then, and it continues to be my view now, that we were not breaking the law, that what we were doing was within the law, that I had assumed the, that the President of the United States, who is, after all, the senior elected official in this land, was aware of it. The fact is, I believe that the President ought to be able to carry out his foreign policy. And if one goes back to 1984, when this activity began, and I don't see a great deal of difference between what we were doing in, the, in terms of the actual arrangement between what we did in, in 1985 with the sale of Hawk missiles, or tow missiles, excuse me, or the earlier contributions made by other countries to these activities, that they are within the bounds of the executive. I understand that. And I understand where you were because you assumed that the president knew. I did. And I understand your position. But I hope you understand what I am disturbed about. I do. I, and That and there is not a single official elected by the people of this great nation that had any knowledge of that. Isn't that correct? That is correct, Congressman Jenkins, and I have suggested a solution to that. What, what I said earlier, in fact, just before the break, in response to Mr. Lyman, having made the assumption that the President was aware, certainly through my chain of command, indicated that we should proceed. And what I said that this whole thing represented to me was an, in, an indication of a broader problem. And as early as 1985, or maybe it was June of 86, I had given a speech before the American Bar Association in which I had proposed a solution for being able to consult discreetly with members of Congress to get the kinds of appropriations to carry out these activities. I think there is fault to be found on both sides. Oh, I understand that uh, and, and would agree with you fully. And th there ought to be bipartisanship in foreign policy. And I've always tried Sorry. to follow that. Uh, and your votes as for you the well know. resistance were difficult for you and the party, and I understand All right. that. Now, uh, but I believe that the United States government ought to do it. I don't I do believe too, that sir. any privateers ought to be doing it uh, secretly. You see, that's what disturbs me. I understand. But I, again, I want to say, Congressman Jenkins, that I never, from the earliest days of this activity, envisioned that I was in this to make anyone rich. Oh, I understand your position. And I am not, not certain being, at this uh, point that mm -hmm. that's the intention of any of those engaged in it. And as I said the other day, if someone were to ask me to arbitrate 
and I'm sure that they won't. But since we had hypothetical questions, this is another hypothetical answer. If I were asked to arbitrate as to what should be done with the remaining funds that are in accounts or wherever, once those bills were paid and the liens were, were covered and the expenses that had accrued were taken care of, I think every single penny that's left ought to go to the Nicaraguan resistance well, we and save the taxpayers a couple sure. of dollars. We asked Mr. Hakim about that, who has control over it, and he would not uh, agree to that. Give me you know. ten minutes with uh, Mr. Hakim. You think, uh, you think if you have ten minutes that you can uh, get Mr. Hakim to turn over that eight million dollars? If I could meet with anybody without a bunch of lawyers around, I reckon I could, sir. Well, uh, let me ask you about that, really. You, you are a very articulate person and persuasive. And looking back on this, do you think that sometimes you may have persuaded uh, your superior to take certain action even when cabinet members were opposed simply because of your eloquence and uh, very sincere uh, beliefs? I have no doubt about that. Many and times. I have indicated that I accept responsibility. Yes, I understand that. That's not a bad trait. It's a, it's a good trait that you were able to persuade people. Isn't that correct? The good Lord gives us all certain gifts. And you uh, certainly have a, a good one there that you should be uh, very grateful for. Uh, you persuaded uh, Poindexter to continue this even against uh, Schultz and uh, Weinberger's position, didn't you? I don't know that it was only me. But I, it certainly resulted in that. Yes, sir. Uh, and on many other occasions, uh, you were the principal voice, I'm assuming, within the National Security Council as far as uh, persuading uh, the administration to take a certain position. Do you think that you played the most important role? Congressman Jenkins, on some issues I was probably the only voice, and that's not to say that's necessarily good or bad, but that all of the men that I work for, for whom I still have enormous regard, sure. were judicious men of great intellect, patriotism, and to go back to one of our earlier comments, none of this, particularly when it came to drafting letters that were not accurate or misleading, None of that came easy to any of us. I'm not, uh, as I indicated to you, I'm not so concerned what you would do with this permanent fund, but I'm concerned about the future Ollies that may have uh, jurisdiction over the fund. Are the people who follow uh, Mr. Poindexter under any administration, uh, based upon what you have said, I mean, if they decided to, uh, I'm not talking about you, but whoever had control of this fund, they wanted to give the money to the Sandinistas they could have. They'd better look out for me if they did. Well, I'm not talking about with you being there. I'm talking about your successor. This was going to be an ongoing that was the fund, answer. was it not? It was. I, I, again, I can't say for sure when we started talking with the Israelis about the kinds of activities I described to you last night what the time frame would have been. Most of those were relatively short-term operations as I described them to you. Well, the exhibit 
Well, I hope I've, and while part of this has been repetitious, I wanted you to see the concern that I have with this type of operation. I don't know where you see any con any dangers in that type of operation or not. I share some of your concerns, but I also share a belief that there are responsible people within the executive who are competent to undertake those kinds of activities. But and given lack of alternative, again, I still see it to be within the law. You, you think that we ought to have within the law that type of fund set up that has maybe no supervision whatsoever by any elected group? No, I, I did not say that I thought we ought to do that. So long as the Congress President knows, I'm assuming. That's first of all correct. And second of all, I don't, I don't necessarily think we ought to have to be in that kind of a predicament. My sense is that it would be far better to be able to consult discreetly with those committees that make the authorizations and appropriations for intelligence activities, to have a clear understanding between the executive and the Congress that, that revelations regarding those activities are totally under, unacceptable to our national security interests, and that those monies ought justifiably to come from this body. After all, it is the Congress that appropriates. So I share your, your desired outcome completely. Well, it's, it's not that. I just could not ever support any type of private foreign policy under that type of description is my concern. I understand what you're saying, sir, and I, that's why I took issue with the description of a government within a government. It was not nearly so broad, although it was described by Director Casey as a full-service covert operation. Right. But, but if it's it, not, uh, it's private money coming in, as you have indicated. There was. But the direction as to how it is spent is coming right from the government, our government. It was. And by future administrations, if the fund remained permanent. I've, I've given a solution for how to take care of well, that. I, I, I understand that, and we may have to look at it. Let me go into another area for a moment. As you, prob <coughs> as you probably know, I've had great difficulty also with the practice of either soliciting uh, funds from third countries for foreign policy actions which may or may not be, uh, which are not supported by the Congress. I'm not going to get into the uh, argument as to whether or not the Boling Amendment, uh, the different definitions. I understand. But if I may, part of the you know, understanding that I had with Director Casey was a parallel in which there is, as we all know, at least the intelligence committees know, a covert operation approved by the Congress in which contributions are provided by other governments. Well, I understand that. And the initial contribution from country number uh, two you got me again. Uh, was really sought by the Secretary of State, I believe, uh, by some higher official, you, you were not instrumental in that, is, if, if I understand I it I was correctly. instrumental in that I established, I had Mr. Calero establish an account. I passed that account note card to Mr. McFarland. Now, I I've still don't know that it was number two, yeah. sir. The, the, the difficulties that I have, which have been 
well publicized, is that I think that when we place ourselves in such a position of seeking donations from third countries that may have no direct interest in Nicaragua, uh, that we compromise ourselves and place them in a compromising situation. You understand the difficulties with that approach, do you know? I understand what you're saying, Congressman Jenkins, and if I may, I, I, I'm not sure that I entirely agree with you. And the reason I say that is because, as I indicated in my testimony, I didn't have to use a great deal of convincing to encourage or, or however one wants to put it, have other people make contributions. Almost uh, without a, an exception, there were others who saw it to be in their interests to support the cause of the Nicaraguan resistance. Um, it was mind-boggling how, how very clearly they saw the consequences of a communist takeover and consolidation in Nicaragua and the inevitable expansion of communism in Central America as creating vulnerabilities to them even though they were tens of thousands of miles from here. And thus, if one uses the parallel of the support provided by another country for an authorized covert operation that is, uh, is now unfortunately known, we, I don't think that we incurred any liabilities by asking them to, to assist us in that activity. And they have done so. And honestly, I don't think that we have incurred liabilities by right. asking or others to help us with the cause of democracy in Central America. Well, I know that you made a similar response, and I might say that uh, I had some concern with what you said. It was a good speech, but uh, a good response as far as your position. But you indicated that many members of the Congress, uh, here these other nations were giving, and the Congress of the United States uh, would not uh, do what they were doing for the cause of democracy. You did. Yes, I know I did. But I picked up this list, and I know there's differences of opinion on this panel, but I respect their views, even though they may be opposite of my views. And I looked at this list of nations, and I do not see a single democracy on the list except the first one who gave us no financial help. And is it, I think it's unfair to the panel, do you not, or to the Congress, to say that nations that are not even democracies themselves have more interest in democracy in Nicaragua than the Congress of the United States? Mr. Jenkins, I, I did not make the accusation in that, in that form. Well, what I said was that those countries demonstrated an awareness of the consequences of a communist takeover in Central America that made them want to contribute to a democratic outcome in Nicaragua. The fact is that if we were to have been proscribed from doing that kind of activity and the Congress sought to proscribe the executive from their doing that then it should have passed a law that forbade it, and there should have been the ultimate constitutional confrontation. 
I want to ask you then, and, and I apologize if, if you did not make that type of a statement. I understood that you were being critical of the Congress as compared to foreign countries who love democracy maybe more than than uh, members. No, I was being critical of the Congress. I All would right. leave it at that, sir. All right, sir. I, it just struck me as ironic that none of these were democratic countries. Let me. Uh, let me move into the negotiations. Let me move into uh, uh, a bit further in your testimony as to as to how these countries were willing to give. As I look at the nine countries on the list, uh, we received uh, contributions only from financial contributions from number two and number three and uh, the one that has been identified as Brunei which was never used never found or it would have been sir <laughs> was placed in the wrong account unfortunately you made contact with uh, country number five I assume that they didn't make did not make contact with us wanting to give. I don't recall the exact arrangement of who contacted who, but there was uh, there were discussions and there was assistance provided. Well, the question is, as I look down the list, did any of these countries voluntarily come to us and want to donate? Well, yes, one that was turned down, number six. Okay, one At least through an intermediary, not directly. Yes. Uh, I'm not too sure how the approach with three started. I believe it was through uh, a General, person who's already testified. General Singlob. Exactly. And it took uh, a year or so before they contributed. And, and, and you met with them one time, did you not? I did. Uh, I, I would... I, perhaps I misunderstood, Congressman Jenkins. You said none of those ten countries are democracies or none of those who gave were democracies. Do you see another there besides uh, number one who did not give? I s number one, and, th and number one did make a contribution, but it wasn't necessarily money, although some money was used. Number seven is certainly a democracy, and they provided... They didn't give any money. No, they provided services. Yes. Did any of these countries voluntarily come to us to give, is my question. I can't say that they did, no. So they were not exactly beating our door down to, uh, to make contributions. Well, just to clarify, if you're talking about giving being financial only, that's correct. But if you're talking about looking for ways to support a democratic outcome in Nicaragua, that's not correct. And various countries made various proposals as to how they could help, and we took them up on most of them, particularly in Central America. Well, I, I was simply looking at the uh, ledger uh, of the money that came in, and yes. uh, I did not see any there that... Uh, that came. In your meeting uh, with 
the delegate of country number three. That eventually gave us the one that did contribute. Yes. Total of $2 million. I believe so, yes. At that particular time, what did you discuss with that representative that was set up for you? The appointment was set up by the State Department, as I understand. Actually, it was prior to his arrival at the State Department. Mm -hmm. He was still working on the National Security Council staff at the time. And I discussed, uh, well, he said that various overtures had been made to him by various parties and that uh, there was interest back in uh, his capital, but that he wanted to make sure that that was something that we would uh, indeed want done. And I confirmed that. I told him that we would be very grateful, as indeed we were. The no quid pro quo was suggested, none was offered, and the contributions were made. Well, as you probably know from previous hearings, at that particular time there was a very important trade bill that affected, I do understand that. That, affected that country. I do understand that. And that it had been passed by the Congress but not dealt with at this particular time, vetoed or signed by the President, and that the contribution came after the bill had passed the Congress, adversely affecting country number three, and it was subsequently uh, vetoed. There was no discussion about trade issues or any other issue. Never. Because that's outside of your jurisdiction anyway, and you would not have uh, discussed that, would you? I dealt intensely on trade issues, which were political military issues in Central America. That issue was never, ever raised, discussed in any way. Oh. Congressman Jenkins, I want, I want it to be very clear on the record that neither he nor I discussed it, and I, because it was a part of the world in which I did not have political military uh, policy uh, activity, was totally unaware that that was an issue, totally totally unaware that it was even an issue yes. on the Hill. Is that correct? That is correct. I, I'm not saying that you had any, because I understand I that's understand. outside of your sphere of uh, discussion. I just don't know what and else. I, and I feel the same about Dr. Segur. I just can't imagine that Dr. Segur mm -hmm. in any way in, used that meeting or the fact of this meeting to influence that activity at the White House whatsoever. But you would have no reason to know either, I assume, no. if that ever crossed the minds of the officials from country number three. I have tried hard not to read other people's minds, sir. You don't think that that would ever enter into their I don't know. considerations? I do not know. They did not mention it to me, sir. I understand. Do you know whether or not any other official, uh, Mr. Poindexter or Mr. McFarland or anyone else ever discussed this? The subject was never, ever raised with me. I never even heard of it until these hearings, sir. I want to very quickly, for what little time I have left, uh, go into a, to another area. Mr. O'Boyle has testified that in the course of a meeting uh, with you following a 
fundraising solicitation with Mr. Channel, not with you, but with Mr. Channel. Uh, you indicated a plan for U.S. involvement in Nicaragua that was extremely, in his words, very, very secret, and that you indicated that should not be revealed to anyone else. Did that conversation ever take place? I do not recall the specific conversation with Mr. O'Boyle or conversations, because it appears that I met more than once with Mr. O'Boyle by you know, my recollection. I cannot imagine that I used the word secret. I probably used the word sensitive. It was probably in response, and that question was asked by others, and the question would generally be asked, look, is there any end to this? How can this possibly come to a conclusion? I hear on the one hand that there's no way for the Nicaraguan resistance to ever militarily win a victory over the Sandinistas, given the preponderance of numbers and force on their side. And I described to him a plan which had been discussed with the Nicaraguan resistance. It was not uh, summarily dismissed, as, as others may have indicated, and in fact was designed to preclude U.S. military ground combat operations. I want this committee or these committees to be abundantly clear that I personally in every policy paper I wrote for the President and for my superiors and for coordination with the other departments and agencies with whom we were in contact at the NSC, vociferously advocated solving the problem of democracy in Nicaragua without the use of U.S. military force. And that's very, very important. I understand that. But, uh, but, uh, but Congressman, mm -hmm. I think people have left the wrong impression. This man saw too many Marines die to in any way advocate using U.S. military force in Central America unless it was the last. Oh, there's resort. no disagreement on that issue. The point I'm asking uh, was, did you discuss any, in, in his words, very, very secret My words would be, look, this is a sensitive issue. It's not classified. This is, it is, is that not right? classified. Oh, that's it was all discussed with mm -hmm. the resistance. Okay. That's the only, uh, that, that's the answer that I was, uh, if it was not classified. Uh, he is one of the people who uh, later contributed a uh, hundred and something thousand. I was told that he did, and I was never present when any check was ever handed to Mr. Miller or Mr. Channel. Ever. Oh, I understand that. Uh, you've already testified to that. I, I'm just curious about the... Uh, the uh, security aspect. Let me ask you about one other thing in security that, uh, since I'm not on the Intelligence Committee, are the, uh, is the software for the KL-43 machines, are they, is that classified? I'm told, I was told many months ago, that the machines, once the zero eyes key was pushed on it, that the machine is as unclassified as this microphone. The software is not classified. It was the internal hardware, the machine. Once, it was, once the zero eyes button was pushed, removing the encryption, that the machine was completely I may not fully understand, but I understand there is software also. Is that classi classified? As I understand software, sir, it is the program that is put into the machine. You right. Type in the That is program. classified, is it not? The, the, the tapes that yes. were used to enter the encryption tapes were classified. That's correct. Yes, sir. Now... Mr. 
Hakeem had a machine with software. I know that General Secor did, and Mr. Hakeem may have had one too. I don't. Did recall. either of those have security clearance? General Secord certainly did. I don't know. General Secord had security clearance. Well, I, I said that perhaps to, I was under the belief that General Secord had a security clearance for the entire time that he was engaged with us. I believe he's testified that he didn't, did well, not have. I was, uh, if that's the case, I but the, misunderstood. But who provided those machines and the software to those people? I did. At the direction of Admiral Poindexter? I, when I, you say the direction of Admiral Poindexter, well, I am sure that I told him I was using these machines. I provided one back to his office so that I could communicate with him. And I'm, I'm sure that I told him at some point who had them. And uh, there were about seven or eight that were given out with software, including uh, the uh, airplane company down in Florida. We passed out cassettes every month. The cassettes well, uh, expired. The only question I'm asking, did anyone check to see whether any of these people had security clearance? I was led to believe that the airplane company did have the security clearances, and that they do classified government work, and that uh, the people who had it, with possible exception of Mr. Akeem, uh, had security clearances. And that was, uh, who led you to believe that? Well, I guess the people with whom I was working. Poindexter. No, no, I, Admiral Poindexter never told me that so-and-so down in Florida or Central America had a security clearance. But I, I made an assumption, perhaps erroneously, that those people who had the machines were empowered or authorized to have them. Just based upon all the facts, you assumed yes. that they had security clearance. Yes. Isn't that correct? Yes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Colonel Orr. Thank you for your testimony uh, before this panel. I know that uh, it's been a long and grueling week, and uh, I appreciate your testimony very much. Thank you, Mr. Jenkins. The chair recognizes Mr. Cheney for one hour. For one minute. Uh, this is always dangerous, but certainly, Mr. Hyde, I'll be happy to. <laughs> <laughs> it's a high-risk operation. Uh, just referring to the uh, list of countries that my dear friend from Georgia mentioned that there were no democracies on there, I don't wish to quarrel with him. I, I see three full democracies, a couple of half democracies. But uh, a little bicentennial note for my friend, it was Louis XVI's France which made our revolution possible and democracy in this country. And he was so undemocratic that a guy named Robespierre took care of him in a few years. So uh, sometimes uh, democracy can get help from uh, uh, strange sources, and I thank you. Yield just for one half second. I certainly will yield to the gentleman. I simply Georgia. looked at the list of countries and uh, hoped that the, I specified the countries that gave. The only ones that I saw other than number one that was, in fact, a full democracy. Uh, as a matter of fact, one, I think, is communist. But... Uh, <laughs> But the rest were not. Uh, democracy, and a couple of them. One of them is making a great move towards democracy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think I should reclaim my time. Thank you, Colonel North. Uh, Mr. Cheney. I know it's been a long, difficult week. Let me say at the outset, uh, 
that I've been tremendously impressed with the way you've handled yourself in front of the committee. And I know I speak uh, for a great many people who've been watching the proceedings because the Congress has been absolutely buried in the favorable public reaction to your testimony and phone calls and telegrams. And I know I speak for a great many people when I say that I, for one, believe you've been very direct and very candid and very forthright with the committee. And as a member of the committee, I certainly appreciate that. Thank you, sir. Let me, uh, I've got several things I'd like to touch upon, but their uh, key point for me through these proceedings has been to try to place the events of the Iran arms transaction and the, the support network for the Contras within a broader context so that we understand the way some of these decisions were made and why the President and his key advisors made the decisions they made. Uh, I don't think, for example, it makes sense to, to focus on the Contra operation without talking about Central America, and we did that yesterday. I don't think it makes sense uh, or that it's possible to understand these events without understanding the impact of uh, numerous changes in congressional policy. And I think with respect to the Iranian arms transaction, at least it's my theory, that it doesn't make sense to try to understand that without focusing specifically upon the role of the hostages and the impact they had upon the thinking of the president and of those people around him as he wrestled with uh, the difficult responsibilities that uh, he obviously had to weigh in deciding to undertake these actions. Can you uh, briefly describe for the committee your role and responsibilities in connection with the hostage families? Uh, I believe you served as a sort of a liaison person part of the time you were at the NSC for, uh, for the hostage families. My, uh, my specific role was that of the uh, NSC staff officer responsible for policy and activity, coordinating government activity on terrorism, and hostages fell within that since it's through terrorist acts that they were taken. We made uh, enormous efforts in our government to locate and to recover our hostages through a variety of means. That inevitably led to contacts with the families uh, which were necessi necessary, necessitated by the fact that the families of most of these men had lived in the region for years. I, I believe uh, Reverend Weir was in Lebanon or the Middle East for 30 some odd years. They of course had sources of information that our government didn't have by virtue of the tenure that they had. And it became necessary even if one didn't think that meeting with the families was going to have a good policy impact because it is a devastating experience to meet with a wife or the daughter or the mother or the son of a hostage repeatedly and see the anguish in their face and know in your heart that your government can't try as it would, can't do anything about it. It was... Uh, I think I, I tried to give an accolade to a young man by the name of John Adams yesterday at the State Department who is within the consular services, at least he was, and whose job was to be the U.S. government's principal point of contact. The anguish that that man has gone through with these hostage families is almost akin to their own. For that reason, uh, and seeing that, and knowing how I felt, having met with the families and 
both in groups and individually a number of times. I did not want the president to meet. In fact, we had set up a, a, a program by which the vice president would meet with the families. Not that the vice president is more callous, but that the ultimate decisions on things to be done would have to be the president's. Nonetheless, it was taken as a decision that the president would meet with them. And I, I don't mean this in any way to be critical of our, of our political process in the White House. I think that places an unfair burden on the heart of our president. And the president felt deeply about it, as I did. And I am willing to admit that that may have colored my decisions or my recommendations or even his. I know that those of us like John Adams who met with the families frequently saw that anguish as something that we wanted to solve. On top of that, we had Director Casey, who, as I indicated last night, had a very, very good reason for wanting one of his own back. And in spite of task forces and increased intelligence and enormous diplomatic activities, nothing succeeded until we came to this initiative. All of what I am telling you is now history, but it can nonetheless affect presidential decisions in the future, not just this president, but others. The, the longer-term solution is to create circumstances where hostage-taking is not a viable alternative, or groups that believe in that find that it is not in their interest. Now, there are a number of ways of doing that. We can leave our hostages that are now taken forever and show that we just don't care about hostages. You and I know that not to be true. You can take action against the hostage takers until they feel that the price is too high. The Soviets did that and got their people back almost instantly. Or you can try to influence the environment of support for the hostage takers. And that's what we tried to do. In other words, the environment of support philosophically, religiously, financially for the Hezbollah in, Iran, er, in Lebanon came from Iran. And we sought to exert influence over the terrorists by going to their backers. We also had broader goals and objectives that I tried to articulate in the findings that I worked on. And I think that if we were able to get to the point where the, we, we were able to establish a high-level dialogue well above my pay grade, that we would have been able to achieve the kind of outcome that we were seeking. But we all knew that we couldn't establish that dialogue unless we got beyond the obstacle of the hostages. And so one begat the other problem. And that course of action, which started in September of 1985, was still at play as late as November of 1986. And though people can criticize the president for not 
choosing to notify the, the Congress at any one point in time, pursuant to a finding that he had signed. I also had in my files the Hostage Act. The Hostage Act goes all the way back to the early 1800s. I believe I had sent that forward to my superior saying, look, here is the authority to do whatever is necessary. That's basically the words that are in the Hostage Act to recover American hostages, and after you have them back, tell the Congress what you've done and how you did it. In this day and age, where Americans are increasingly at risk of terrorism, and they are, we ought to think very carefully about proscribing presidential authority to do those kinds of things. We ought to think very carefully before we start to stricture statutes and regulations and requirements that would bind him in such a way that he cannot act and that we could not retri retrieve or recover our people safely. I do not believe we have seen the last of it. No matter what the outcome of those who are now held in the Lebanon, it is very likely that we will see more. No matter how callous we pretend to be, Americans are not, and the rest of the world knows that. And I would say, sir, that perhaps what we ought to do is offer an exception to the requirements for findings and perhaps add on to the Hostage Act so that a president is allowed to take such actions as necessary and carry them on for as long as necessary to recover our people. To follow up <clears throat> on that, Colonel, uh, I believe... Uh not certain what the source of this information is. It may be uh, press stories. But that one key point, one important decision was made, I believe, in the summer of 1985 by the President after he'd been to Arlington National Cemetery to lay a wreath on the tomb of uh, the young sailor Dean Stedham, who was killed, uh, brutally murdered by the hijackers who took uh, TWA 847. Do you remember that incident? I remember it well, sir. Could you tell us uh, about it? There were several events that the president was deeply moved by, and the, the murder of Robert Stedham was one of them. The murder of the Marines in El Salvador by terrorists and two American citizens along with him was another. The murder of Leon Klinghoffer. All of those affected, I think, all Americans, and certainly the president. And that trip to Arlington was perhaps one of the most difficult that I saw the president have to make. And this is a president who had, who had gone to meet the, the bodies of those killed in Beirut, some of whom were my fellow Marines. Much has been made of, of how callous could North be to deal with the very people who killed his fellow Marines. The fact is we were trying to keep more Marines from being killed and more Robert Stedhams from being killed, and more Marines in El Salvador and Al Schaufelbergers in places like El Salvador from being killed. And I believe that our policy needs to be broad enough to be able to take action, perhaps even as stringent as that taken by the Soviets in Lebanon that allowed their people to come home, as well as actions similar to the ones perhaps that I took and that are in so much debate, or actions like we took with the Aquile Loro, to be able to allow the terrorists to come to the conclusion that it's not wise to mess around with American citizens. I think the president was deeply moved. 
Do you recall anything he might have said at the time, uh, any specific words? Did he ever discuss his feelings uh, with you or in meetings you attended? I don't recall them, sir. Okay. We move on for a moment to uh, the question of Mr. Buckley. And uh, I know we discussed some of this in executive session last night, and clearly I don't want you to get into an area that uh, is classified and, and needs to remain classified by any means. But uh, it's generally known uh, that Mr. Buckley occupied a very sensitive post, uh, and I wonder if you might uh, talk briefly about that situation. He was our CIA station chief in Beirut. He um, was, and he was an expert on terrorism. And he was also involved in another program of enormous before he went, uh, when he was back here at the headquarters, uh, a program of extraordinary sensitivity. And what happened to him in Beirut? Mr. Buckley was... Uh, from indications that we have, and it's been assembled over some period of time, and I'm not sure what the current analysis was, but when I left the government, or the, I left the government yet, when I left the administration, the analysis we had was that Mr. Buckley was healthy when he was taken. He was beaten severely. He was probably tortured uh, considerably. That he had an ex a tortured confession of some 400 pages was extracted from him, the contents of which may well have been passed to the Soviets, that Mr. Buckley probably died of the complications of pulmonary edema, and that is that he'd been kicked so brutally that his kidneys and lungs filled up with fluid, and he basically suffocated. And that obviously was known to Director Casey. Was it, uh, I assume reports on that were provided to uh, the President during the period of time that uh, Mr. Buckley was still in captive? Yes. Uh, how we was have that? never recovered the body of Mr. Buckley, as you know, sir. How was that information presented to the President? There were CIA reports that came down with the PDB, the President's Daily Brief, and the like. They were contained in reports that I sent up to the President. Was it the kind of issue he asked about from time to time in the course of the morning briefings? It's my recollection that the President frequently asked about the status of the hostages, not only to me but to my superiors in briefings. The President certainly wanted to meet with all of those hostages who had been released. He met with uh, the TWA 847 uh, hostages when we got them free uh, and went aboard the airplane. I recall. He met with the, uh, the three hostages that we were able to get out through our effort. And he made a plea to the American media when David Jacobson came home, asking for their consideration that further revelations not complicate the release of others. Were special efforts made uh, to recover Mr. Buckley? And yes, would, they were. I would assume. Uh, partly on the basis that he was uh, literally one of our own, a man in service to the nation, uh, that there were special feelings on the part of Director Casey for Mr. Buckley as well. It is my understanding that there was not only a professional relationship between Mr. Buckley and Mr. Casey, but a personal one, and that Director Casey felt very strongly about William Buckley. He, to the very end, Director Casey was anxious to get the body 
of Bill Buckley home and certainly the tortured confession. Would it be fair to say that the uh, situation of the hostages and especially Mr. Buckley had an impact at least upon the policy decisions we've been talking about here in connection with the opening to Iran, the, uh, the decision to ship weapons to the Ayatollah? I believe it did. There is a piece that appeared in uh, one of the London newspapers, which I happened to pull out today that I brought with me, that, that uh, is headlined that the kidnap, kidnap and videotaped torture of William Buckley, the CIA's head of station in Beirut, shocked his superiors in Washington and led the Reagan administration uh, to reverse its policy on negotiating for hostages and selling arms to Iran. Is that too strong a statement, or do you think it has some truth to it? One of, one of the most difficult things that uh, I experienced in this rather lengthy ordeal, and I'm sure it was the same for both, both Mr. McFarlane and Admiral Poindexter and the President, was to see the pictures that we were able to obtain, the videotapes, particularly of, of Bill Buckley as he died over time, to see him slowly but surely being wasted away. And we were able to obtain through intelligence sources those kinds of pictures with the assistance of a European who worked with us on this activity. And it was awful to say the least. You mentioned a uh, proposal at one point that you were involved in, and we've had testimony on it from other witnesses as well, uh, to, in effect, try to remove the president a step from having to consider the intense emotional burden or carry the burden, if you will, uh, with respect to dealing with the hostage families on a regular basis. Did anything ever come of that? No. The decision was taken to have the president meet with those families. Who made that decision? I don't know, sir. Do you know if the plan ever went to the president for his consideration? I do not. I don't recall. I, I certainly propose that he not. And that may well not have ever, ever been realistic anyway. The president is a man of deep human emotion, in my experience. The call he made to me was a deeply personal one, and I think heartfelt, and I was grateful for it. And I saw him interact the same way with other people for five and a half years. Would it be fair to say, then, by way of conclusion on the, the hostages, that, that it's a little bit easier to understand why the President made the decisions he did with respect to the operations you ran in an effort to recover the hostages, and that the policy, which has obviously been widely criticized in some quarters, uh, appears in a somewhat different light when we understand the depth of concern on the part of the President over the fate of uh, handful of American citizens and the brutal torture and subsequent death of uh, Mr. Buckley, a man who obviously gave his life uh, in the clandestine service of the nation. I could agree entirely with that, sir. Thank you, Colonel. I'd like to move on to a couple of other areas of uh, not so sensitive a nature, not so emotional a nature, and focus a little bit, if we can, upon the question of how the NSC operated. Uh, one of the comments that's made with respect to the Tower Commission or in the Tower Commission report has to do with the notion that somehow the NSC became operational instead of advisory to the President. 
As I look at your record on the NSC, you were involved in a great many operational activities, uh, planning the Grenada operation, the Libyan raid, uh, uh, running the operation, or certainly having a significant hand in the operation uh, that captured the hijackers of the Achille Loro. Um, was that a, were, were you ever conscious of or ever involved in debates within the NSC or with your superiors about the wisdom of running those kinds of operations out of the NSC? And let me say at the outset, I don't approach it with any preconceived notion of what the right way is necessarily to do it, but it's, uh, it's not unusual for there to be a debate within the administration as to who's going to have responsibility for these kinds of programs and whether it ought to reside in the White House or in some other location in government. Congressman Cheney, I, I, I've read the Tower Report, and as I'm sure most, if not all, that are here have. My sense is that legislating how the president's staff would work would be most unwise, and I'm not even sure to be constitutional. My sense is that the NSC was at times operationally engaged and successful, and you just cited a number of successes. And success has a thousand fathers, and failure is an orphan. And all of those activities that you cited as successes were not just operations of the NSC. They may have all engaged the same few handful of people at the NSC, but they also engaged the attention and efforts, incredible efforts, of other people at the Department of State and the, and the CIA and the Department of Defense. We could not have done Achille Loro without a personal relationship between an NSC staff member and an Israeli intelligence official. Nor could it have been done without a personal relationship between an NSC staff member and the National Security Advisor, or between the National Security Advisor and a very high-level Pentagon official, Admiral Art Moreau. And in, at one point in time, we all had phones up to each ear, one phone with information in, another phone with information out. Uh, it was probably the best example of coordination that could exist. And for those, we are given accolades. And as I described it yesterday, one of the real heroes was Major General Carl Steiner, who was at the far end of the, of the other phones and those pilots off the, the carriers for the F-14s. And it all worked like clockwork, and everybody smelled good when it was done. And then you end up with one that goes really wrong. And if you think about it, the one that went really wrong exposed another one that had been going pretty good. People might disagree with it. People may have great policy differences as to how it was handled and great policy differences as to whether or not it complied with Boland, but it had worked. And on balance, I'm not real sure that it is absolutely necessary to change a great many things except the process by which we can accord the Congress its constitutional role in being apprised of activities as they're happening. But when you think about it, there are some 
who would have said that before I talked to that Israeli intelligence official or before we committed those aircraft or those personnel under General Steiner, we should have had a, con a congressional consultation. If we'd had to do that, we'd still be looking for the terrorists that killed Leon Klinghoffer. And so what I'm saying is there's got to be a judicious balance, and I am certainly not the man to have to choose it. I believe it's got to come about as a consequence of a dialogue between the leadership of the Congress and the chief executive. I don't believe that there ought to be such rigorous proscriptions that when it becomes necessary, like it did on the night of the 14th of April, 1986, that we cannot take actions without the possibility that those actions would be revealed before and risk the lives of Americans. I think those things eventually have to be resolved, and they ought to be resolved soon, because as I have said, this is a nation at risk in a dangerous world, and it's not going to be easier, and I don't think it's going to be more difficult because of the things that Ollie North or John Poindexter or Bud McFarland did. I think it's necessary that the administration and the Congress come to an accord as to what would be told and when and how and to whom and have absolute confidence that if it's done, it won't be revealed beforehand. And if the decision is taken not to do it, that won't be bandied about town because those are things that create an even more dangerous world. A point I'd like to touch on briefly if I can, Colonel. There's a long tradition in the presidency of presidents and their staffs becoming frustrated with the bureaucratic organizations they're required to deal with. Uh, to increasingly pull difficult decisions or problems into the White House to be managed because there's oftentimes no sense of urgency at the state or at defense or at any of the other departments that uh, have to be worked with. And I, I have seen, uh, obviously, we've seen other administrations operate in this fashion. Uh, it's a well-established practice, but uh, one wonders if there aren't problems that uh, we encounter in the departments and agencies that automatically lead presidents sooner or later to move in the direction of deciding that the only way to get anything done, to cut through the red tape, to be able to move aggressively, is, uh, is to have it done in effect inside the, the boundary of the White House. I notice uh, one point uh, in one of your prof messages, I believe, you've got a comment that uh, it's amazing that Dick Secord can do in five minutes what the CIA can't get done in two days. To what extent did that kind of thinking lead to the decisions that your unit should exist and that you should be assigned the duties you were assigned? I think there was a, a, a major, uh, that was a major factor in much of it. There is enormous frustration with the ability to cut through red tape, as I believe it was counsel indicated. I must uh, confess to being guilty of wanting to cut through red tape, being impatient. There are certainly times for patience and prudence, and there are certainly times when one has to cut through the tape. And I think the hope is that one can find that there are good and, and prudent men who are judicious in the application of their understanding of the law and understanding of what was right, and I think we had that. And I'm not sure that the, that the great political debates of this land will resolve that, that friction that exists even within the executive. 
And I'm not sure that you'll ever find a president who's unwilling to wait so long that he doesn't draw things in closer to himself. And in fact, it goes all the way back to the foundation of the republic where the president himself sends out his own agents to negotiate the Jay Treaty. And by the way, I would point out to someone who made an observation the other day, I didn't get that thing from my lawyers. I wrote it up a year before I ever met him. And the fact is, there will always be times when a president wants to send out his own agents, and he should not be proscribed from doing so. And he should be able to do so, unless we're about to change the Constitution. In your discussions and uh, your testimony, obviously, one of the themes that comes through repeatedly is your relationship with various officials of the Israeli government, uh, Israeli intelligence services, Israeli citizens working apparently as emissaries or on behalf of their government. Um, would you call those back-channel communications between uh, the president or the president's representatives in the Israeli government? Uh, back-channel has, uh, has a connotation to it that I, I'm not sure is necessarily... I don't, I don't mean it in a negative sense at all. I'm, I'm, there, I'm questioning whether, whether or not, for example, uh, the Secretary of State would be unhappy if he were to discover that uh, the NSC staff were communicating with uh, another country without his knowing about it? I, I'm not trying to characterize the Secretary's uh, opinion of me, but my sense is he is very unhappy. When he finds out about it? When he found out about it. Yes. Did, can you uh, relate that to us? Express his dissatisfaction I, to you? I'd rather not. <laughs> Can we let the record show that uh, that your activities in that regard, though, did generate a certain amount of friction between yourself and, and key members of the president's cabinet, or at least in this case, the, Apparently the secretary so. of state? Apparently so. All right. Good enough. I'd like to move on. Uh, I'll try to end before I use my entire hour so we can get out of here on a Friday night. But I, as you know, I've been a strong supporter of the Contra program. You and I worked on it some prior to all of these developments, and, and uh, we're actively engaged right now in an effort to persuade Congress to renew assistance for the Nicaraguan Democratic Resistance, and that vote's going to come up this fall. And I must admit to a certain ambivalence when uh, I think about the operation you ran, because on the one hand, I'm delighted that the resistance survived, and I'm persuaded based in large part on your testimony as well as information that uh, comes to me through my service on the Intelligence Committee, that the resistance might well not have survived, at least certainly not have survived as well as it did during the period the Boland Amendment was in effect if it had not been for your, your actions. On the other hand, I'm persuaded that one of the most difficult assignments any president has isn't so much deciding what our foreign policy ought to be. That's oftentimes simple compared to the larger task of building domestic political support to be able to sustain that policy. And it would seem our history is rife with examples, whether it's Woodrow Wilson in the League of Nations or FDR in the period before World War II or Lyndon Johnson in Vietnam, of situations in which presidents have tried to pursue a policy and ultimately have been defeated uh, or found themselves in circumstances where they were unable to build the level of public support required. 
Many of us think that one of the most useful contributions this administration may be able to make before the president leaves office is to institutionalize the so-called Reagan Doctrine, the notion that the United States be prepared to intervene to support anti-communist insurgents in key parts of the world when it's in our interest to do so, Nicaragua, Angola, Afghanistan. But we've had problems in that regard, obviously, in Nicaragua with the off-again, on-again nature of congressional support, and a lot of that goes right back to our inability so far to be able to persuade the American people that what's at stake in Central America merits the kind of commitment uh, that we've talked about. And I'm concerned, or at least I raise the possibility, going back to my comment of a moment ago about my ambivalent attitude towards, uh, towards your support operation, I'm concerned about the possibility that the controversy surrounding your activities in connection with supporting the resistance may generate the kind of political opposition that will make it difficult, if not impossible, for us to be able to renew that assistance later on this year. And what I wonder and would ask you to comment on is whether or not those kinds of considerations between, on the one hand, the need to build public support for the program, and on the other, the need to run a covert operation to keep the resistance alive, were ever discussed within the administration? Did you ever participate in meetings where administration officials expressed concern about that point? Was there ever a feeling that somehow the covert operation could conceivably jeopardize long-term support for the Contras? Yes, it did. I, I think I answered that question in part uh, earlier. Director Casey was always concerned about that, and I shared that concern. Nonetheless, I felt, and I, I'm sure it was felt by others or we wouldn't have pursued it, that although that risk was very high, the risk of having the resistance annihilated while we waited for the Congress to restore appropriated assistance was even greater. And that in pursuing the activities we did, we at least ensured that the resistance would still be viable because there was absolute confidence that eventually we would get back to where we knew we ought to be. And that was with an authorized government-sponsored program of support for the resistance. My, my own personal sense is that I would have the greatest burden of all on my soul if what I have done or what I have failed to do as a consequence of supporting the resistance from 1984 to the resumption of U.S. assistance in 1986 resulted in a cutoff at this point. And I would beg you, gentlemen, all, that the cause of the Nicaraguan resistance is our own and that regardless of whether you judge me to be right or wrong, that what we have done is we have decided once again with $100 million to support a cause that is just. We have decided to again support an army in the field and a political outcome of democracy in Nicaragua. And that if as a result of what you deem me to have done wrong, you decide to stop that again, 
that will be compounding a tragedy. And I'm not trying to make a speech, Congressman Cheney. I'm making an appeal. Hang whatever you want around the neck of Ollie North, and I have a few millstones that I have laid before you, and I have tried to do so fully and honestly, as difficult as some of that may be, and it has been difficult. But for the love of God and the love of this nation, don't hang around Ollie North's neck the cutoff of funds to the Nicaraguan resistance again. This country cannot stand that, not just because of Nicaragua, but because of all the other nations in the world who look at us and measure by what we do now in Nicaragua the measure of our whole commitment to their cause, to things like NATO, to things like our commitment to peace and democracy elsewhere in the world. How far would we have gotten with the efforts of Dr. Segur in Korea just weeks ago if they didn't really believe that we really wanted democracy? And how long will the people all around the rest of the world who rely on us abide by us and stand with us if, we, if they don't believe that we want democracy enough just a few hundred miles from our own borders. Thank you very much, Colonel. Um, Mr. Chairman, I um, believe I have about 15 minutes left uh, to the great relief of the committee. It's not my intention to use that time, but I would respectfully request that I be allowed to reserve the time in the event some questions arise between now and the end of Colonel North's testimony. According to my clock, you have 20 minutes left. Without objection, 20 minutes will be reserved for Congressman Cheney. And by way of closing, uh, Mr. Chairman, let me again um, simply thank the witness. Colonel North has been, I think, uh, the most uh, effective and impressive witness certainly this committee's heard. And I know I speak for a great many Americans when I thank him for his years of devoted service to the nation. Uh, both in the United States Marine Corps and as a member of the NSC staff. So thank you very much, Colonel. Thank you, sir. The Joint Committee will stand in recess until 9 a.m. Monday morning in this room. However, before doing that, the following ex exhibits will be entered into the record and made part of the record. OLN 1 through and including four, six to eight, 10 to 35, 40 to 73, 76 to 78, 80 to 81, 83 to 93, 95 to 96, 98 to 155, 158 to 179, 181 to 214, 251 to 333C. And the following classified exhibits, which if not declassified prior to publication, will be included in the classified annex. OLN 5, 9, 36 to 39, 74, 75, 79, 82, 94, 97, 156, 157, 180, 334, 360, 2360, 500, 501.
And when we resume our hearings on Monday morning at 9 a.m. July 13th, our witness will be Colonel Oliver North, and the Senator Mitchell will conduct the investigation and questioning.